0: I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick.
1: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints.
0: The most interesting thing I found about myself was I remember we were having dinner in a Bedouin tent one night in the, des- in the desert. And I looked at everyone that was from Israel, and they all were all olive complected, And I went, hmm. And and then I looked at everybody else in our group and and they were all predominantly white. You know, at one point, I finally looked at everybody and I said, you know, if any trouble breaks out here in the Middle East, you guys are on your own. I'm gonna grab that keffiyeh, put it on my head and blend right in. (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, it was very empowering. You know, actually, since then, I've realized that we really have more of the universal look and really shouldn't be meant to be made to feel differently because we're the ones that are universal.
1: Previously on World Footprints, we introduced you to Helen Hernandez, the CEO of the North American Travel Journalists Association, also known as Natcha. Helen shared the path she blazed from her childhood in California, to her work with the labor union movement, to Hollywood, to where she is today as the head of NACHA.
2: With more than 400 members in NACHA, representing destinations and travel journalists, Helen is leading one of the premier travel industry organizations through perhaps the toughest period ever faced by the travel industry. In this finale, we get Helen's thoughts on what COVID-19 is doing to travel, how her organization is responding, and what her hopes are for travel and future generations given the social unrest and environmental concerns. For full disclosure, Ian and I are members of NACHA, and I serve on the advisory board of the organization.
1: Here's the conclusion of our conversation with Helen Hernandez. We pick up asking her about the state of the North American Travel Journalists Association and its membership during the pandemic.
0: I can tell you that we haven't lost any members. I was really surprised um, at that. I really thought that we were going to lose at least 25-30% of our membership, but we haven't. And I think one of the reasons is that over the course of of the last 11 years, we've really developed a community, a community where people have actually become friends and colleagues where they you know, uh, interacted with one another, whether it may be at a conference or, or if it's online through our Facebook group page, which by the way, 80% of our members are on that Facebook group page that we have, and we have over 400 members. So questions are asked, people provide resources for each other, as you know, Tanya and Ian, we have an advisory board comprised of media and DMOs that really advise us on what we should do for our membership, depending on where you are, DMO or media. And we listen very carefully you know, to them in terms of what their ideas and thoughts are. We had a virtual meeting for the membership about a month ago, which was very well received. And I believe, Tanya, you spoke at that as well. I think it's that connection, is making Mm -hmm. sure that people feel connected. We have a call with our DMO Mm -hmm. members every other week. And what they're doing is they're talking to each other and sharing ideas. So, um, which means that people are willing to let others know what they've done that's been successful so that they can try it in their destination. So it's, and it's also, um, how can I put it, a therapeutic session, if you will because people are wondering what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And, and, you know, being able to be propped up and here, it's going to be okay. It may take a little bit of time, but we're all going to be okay. And I think that's really what it's all about is just maintaining that connection and creating a community where people feel like they belong. Mm
1: -hmm. In terms of what you're hearing from the DMOs, in terms of travel here in the short term, what sorts of opportunities are they seizing upon right now, given that most of us can't travel the way that we're accustomed to, certainly, and and people are looking at shorter trips, maybe doing things that they haven't done before, like camping. What are some of the things that you're hearing coming from the industry in terms of how they're going about promoting travel during this time?
0: I think you hit the nail on the head, Ian, and that is they're looking at people that are living anywhere from 200 to 600 miles from any given destination. And camping seems to be the way to go. And I think if you look at the statistics right now, the big hot new uh, market are travel trailers and RVs because people are now hitting the roads. They feel that it's safer and they can control their environments. So I think what destinations are doing are promoting those services that are in within their destination with two folks within a 200 to 600 mile radius with the limitations. I mean, there are limitations with everything, depending on where you go. Here in California, you really can't do anything unless you're outside camping and you have to maintain six you have to be social distance, six feet apart from anybody else, in addition to wearing a mask, in addition to uh, washing your hands. So it's really limited. So I think they're doing the best they can and promoting those things that they can do within their destinations, given the limitations.
2: Yeah. We actually went camping a few weeks ago. For him, it was <laughs> I won't say it was the first time, but it was the first time he pitched our tent. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> And, and I got him to buy some hobo pie makers. He had never heard of a hobo pie. Never. What would you tell a new travel journalist, somebody who wants to start travel writing, about joining Natcha now? Why do you think it's important to have diverse voices within the travel writing space?
0: Well, first of all, anyone that just decides they want to be a travel writer can't join Natchda, unfortunately, because, you know, we have a list of uh, requirements in order to be able to be a member of Natchda. And I think that- What are those? You have to have published, I think it's uh, three times a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to have been a uh, travel journalist for, I think, two years and so there are some requirements that you that you need to meet. And actually they have to send us links of their articles. We actually have to check out their articles. Now having said that, now that we're in this new space, and by the way, we review everyone's credentials every year or whenever they renew. So we're gonna have to look at that again and see what that is because the reality is not everyone's gonna publish this year. And print magazines for all intents and purposes are gone. Right. Uh, everything's gonna be done online. So how do we reconfigure the requirements for NASDA? And with regard to your diversity question, it's extremely important, especially when you're looking at racial and ethnic groups. Those are markets, you know, it's it's just good business. You appeal to various markets. And I see that as uh, why, you know, DMOs really need to look at the diversity aspect of it. And, you know, as I said, I'm a Latina, I'm Mexican American. You know, if I want to attract the Mexican American audience, I probably can do it a, a little bit better than someone else who is non-Mexican American. And the same thing would be with an Asian Pacific Islander community community, African American community, LGBTQ community. And I always like to give the the example of uh, of Puerto Vallarta. It has become the go to spot for LGBTQ community for vacation. And that came out of a conference that NASDAH had in Puerto Vallarta, I believe, six years ago with a push on LGBTQ. The destination received so many articles written about, you know, gay travel, it took off. The person who actually brought the opportunity to us is on our advisory board, Gustavo Rivas Solis. Marketing to, to groups is really important, but you need those voices. At the table, in order to be able to do that effectively, some things are not transferable. You know, and that's one of them, and that's why it's important to really have diversity of all levels in an organization. And I'm also happy to say that. And sorry, Ian, but Natchda is 60% female, <laughs> so we have more female members than we do male members.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, that tends to be the case uh, across the board in this space. Uh, But I'm happy to be uh, diverse in terms of bringing the male perspective and other points of view to the organization. Uh, That's not
0: transferable either, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Helen, as we
1: contemplate the future in terms of the role that an organization like NACA can play in terms of helping journalists tell the stories that need to be told. You certainly pointed out how a destination can be transformed by pinpointing and telling stories that appeal to groups that may not necessarily have been the traditional focus. So there's an education role there for Renatcha to play with respect to getting journalists up to speed. But with respect to the DMOs, what sorts of challenges and opportunities do you see there are a lot of the, the DMOs that you work with represent a lot of middle America, smaller places that aren't necessarily high on the radar screens of people, but you've brought Natchez to these communities and have opened up possibilities there. So how are you looking at things going forward in, in terms of where you and the organization can make a difference with, with journalists and with the DMOs?
0: bringing the two groups together is really important. And creating and developing those relationships are extremely important. With DMOs, we have really concentrated on the second and third tier DMOs in terms of membership. And I like to say, we're the best deal in town for a PR agency, if you will. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, where a lot of DMOs hire big PR firms you know, we, in essence, are also a PR firm. We can serve that capacity for DMOs through our uh, North American travel journalist, Snatch and Notes, that comes out twice a month. Um, we promote their press releases. If they have a FAM trip, we can promote that to our membership. Uh, we had one, uh, someone ask us the other day about a FAM, and, and I said, make sure you find out what type of journalists they're looking for, because there's... There are niches in journalism, too. You're either a culinary writer or a family travel writer or you're a senior writer or you're a recreational and outdoor writer. So, you know, every aspect of what a destination needs can vary depending on what they're going to be promoting at that time. We try to work very closely with our destinations to make sure that they're being promoted to the best of our ability, you know, by sending out e-blasts for them by, you know, in our travel world magazine that we have, they uh, receive a uh, complimentary full page color ad every year with their membership. In times of this pandemic, being able to have that support system of other, you know, sister DMOs to really kind of talk to. I don't know if other DMOs have that kind of resource I'm not familiar with the other organizations, U.S. Travel Association or, you know, the other uh, journalist organizations, whether or not they provide that same benefit of being able to have a, a sounding board for others to, to talk through things. Um, and so that's what we try to do. And, you know, it's it's interesting but we don't have a very large DMO organization membership, but those that are members stay members. They're not leaving. They found a home, if you will, to be able to to work with folks. And that's what we we've tried to create. And with regard to the diversity question, I mean, you know, as I like to remind people, you know, I run a mainstream organization and I'm a Latina. Diversity to me is second nature. It's not something that should be done. We're doing it and we've done it from the very beginning. And we're very, very proud of that. Could we do more? Absolutely. Should we do more? No question. And I think that we've talked about, you know, reaching out to other groups, African-American travel writers or black travel writers, I think uh, Latino travel writers, LGBTQ travel writers, API travel writers, disabled travel writers as well. I mean, I think we want to run the gamut uh, across the board and be representative of everyone in the uh, travel journalism and uh, DMO-CVB space.
1: This is the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Travel deeper by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift we have just for subscribers.
2: As the president of NACHA, how often really do you get to travel?
0: All the time. I enjoy traveling uh, very much. And I think it goes back to the story I told you when I first went to Washington DC in 1977. That was the first time I'd ever been out of California. It's been a wonderful experience for me. I remember my first big trip was a trip with the World Affairs Council out of Philadelphia where I was invited to go on a diplomatic tour of the Middle East, um, where we met with uh, Yitzhak Rabin, Yitzhak Shamir, Teddy Kalik, who's the mayor of Jerusalem, and Anwar Sadat's widow, Jahan Sadat. Uh, it was unbelievable. And you know, I went on this trip and it was with very, very wealthy people. And Norman sent me on the trip, Norman Lear. And he said, you know, you go and you learn as much as you can. I want you to learn. I said, okay. So I was, I was excited. And so uh, I went on the trip and I was treated um, kind of as a second-class citizen because I wasn't wealthy and I, wasn't, I didn't come from a very affluent area and so forth. But what I found was the most interesting thing I found about myself was I remember we were having dinner in a Bedouin tent one night in the des- in the desert, and I looked at everyone that was from Israel, and they all were all olive-complected. I went hmm, and and then I looked at everybody else in our group, and and they were all predominantly white. You know, at one point I finally looked at everybody, and I said, you know. If any trouble breaks out here in the Middle East, you guys are on your own. I'm going to grab that keffiyeh, put it on my head, and blend right in. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I mean, it was very empowering. You know, actually, since then, I've realized that we really have more of a universal look and really shouldn't be meant to be made to feel differently because we're the ones that are universal. So, you know, so wow. That was one of my most memorable, but, you know, and I've had others, you know, spending time in India, you know, at the Ganges and, you know, um, I'm Roman Catholic, so I've been to Lourdes and to Fatima. It's been just such a wonderful, wonderful experience to be able to see the world and to experience cultures and to see how the difference in all the cultures and, and how we look at culture here in the United States is very, very different.
1: We asked Helen to tell us about her thoughts and hopes for a future world and the legacy this generation will leave for the next, especially in light of the pandemic, social unrest, and environmental concerns that we're all facing today.
0: I can speak specifically about the United States. Um, I, my daughter lives in France. And I can tell you that when you go to France, everyone is the same. No one is treated any differently. There's respect for all cultures, all ethnicities, all races in France. It's just a very welcoming, you know, country. I think what's happening here in the United States, as they're calling, for lack of a better term, the browning of America, and that is that everyone, you know, the world is changing. When you look at the diversity of our country, It's changing, and it's through intermarriage. There's diversity in everything that we do. I can speak to my family, my children. My children are half Irish and German and half Mexican. Are they 100% Mexican? No, but they're 50%. My grandchildren are 25%. My grandchildren, when they have their kids, are probably going to be a 12th. So the world is changing, and I think for the good, because when you look at, especially at the arts and culture, and the beauty of the music and the art that we're all being exposed to, it's just what makes this country so special and the ability that we have these freedoms of expression that, are, that people in other countries aren't able to experience. And even with everything going on you know, across the country right now uh, with the peaceful demonstrations, look at what's happening in Hong Kong and look at what's happening here. They can't have peaceful demonstrations in Hong Kong. But we sure can have them here. And I see that as as something that is really changing. And our young people are getting involved. And that's the beauty of what's happening. Our young people are getting involved and saying, this needs to change. And that's where the hope is for the future. And it's going to happen. It just is. It's inevitable.
1: Helen, as we think about travel, and you've traveled all over the world, There are always these places that we visit that really speak to us, that speak to our soul, speak to our heart. What place or places have you been to in the course of your travels that have just really captured you, got up in you, so to speak?
0: I think the one that really spoke to me was Fatima. And I remember going to Easter Sunday Mass at 6 a.m. at Fatima, in the old church with maybe the church was not full there must may have been maybe 75 people in a church that maybe holds 300 Mm -hmm. and then after mass going out into the courtyard and hearing the gregorian chant piped in to the courtyard and just feeling this sense of peace that really brought me to tears i can't explain the feeling that i had that day but just being to me, it, for me to be in such a holy place, it just, you know, it spoke to me. It, it just, it, it, was, it was a wonderful experience that I'll never forget. I uh, taped it on my phone, so whenever I want to hear it, I have the Gregorian chant at Fatima on my phone.
2: We ended our conversation with Helen with our favorite rapid fire question. Pretend that the world is almost back to normal or whatever this new normal is, but it takes us back to a place where we're comfortable with and have been accustomed to. And you're on a a long haul flight to wherever you desire. Who would you choose to sit next to, past or present, on this long haul flight and why?
0: Wow. Who would I have sit next to me? Past or present? That's a great question. Well, one would be my grandfather. I would want my grandfather there because I would have him as a captive audience. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason is that, you know, uh, he had 40 grandchildren. (laughs) and So I would have him all to myself and hear about his stories when he was, you know, with uh, Pancho Villa and learning about, you know, hearing about that firsthand experience that he had in Mexico and the revolution. The next one that I would have would probably be Caesar. I wanted to learn more about what he had done or specifics. I know the general story. He also was about nonviolence. You know, I would really like to explore, you know, all of that with him. The other would be Mother Teresa. At another time, I was actually in India, um, in Calcutta on an Easter Sunday. <laughs> and I went to mass with the sisters of, of Mother Teresa in the convent. And I was so moved by being there and experiencing their poverty and also their generosity, providing food for the poor and going through the orphanage there. And, and I'd really like to talk to her about what motivated her to do what she did for the children, you know, of India, and then the other one I think would be Michelle Obama. Um, I would like to know um, what her her road has been and where she is today, and how she dealt with the challenges on so many levels uh, from the time she married Barack to, you know, the campaign for him to be elected president in uh, two thousand eight. And then post presidency, and how their daughters survived it all. I can imagine it's not easy being a child of a president. So yeah, so I think those are kind of <laughs> some of my thoughts.
2: <laughs> probably, I think um, I think ideally a, a, a private Lear jet with all of your <laughs> your wishes. That would be that would be better than just uh, oh yeah, you know, great.
0: Uh, I'd love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Helen, thank you so much for sharing with us today. No, thank you again for the invitation and and to be continued.
2: I love Helen's story and speaks to a lot of things. It speaks to the ability to rise above adversity, which we are all going through and have gone through our our whole lives including now and I think it also speaks to her leadership the leadership she has shown in an organization that we've been members of and that I serve on the board for you know the fact that no one has left even during these tumultuous times I think speaks very highly uh, about her
1: and it says a lot about the value the members from the DMOs and the journalists see in the organization. Clearly, these are tough times and everyone has to make tough choices financially, but the fact that they haven't lost any members does speak volumes.
2: Despite what we're going through right now, I'm very hopeful about the future of travel. I mean, and I don't believe that that is Pollyannish. I I really believe the travel industry is going to come back and and all of us are going to rise above uh, where we are right now and, and this area, this Error of uncertainty, and I'm looking forward to that. And you know and I hope we keep camping too, dear.
1: And we will. And uh, you know, everyone has to make adjustments. We're not going to hop on a plane or travel thousands of miles to faraway destinations. But there are places where we can find close to home uh, that allow us to have a travel experience to interact with other people to see something and experience something new even if it's place we've gone to before it's always a different experience
2: yeah but I am looking forward to the trips that we had planned this year Japan for the Olympics and hiking the Inca trail and even Micronesia I'm really looking forward to those opportunities so as we close we want to leave you with this thought from an unknown author, but it really reflects the World Footprints mission. The beauty of the world lies in the diversity of its people. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are honored that you chose to take this adventure with us. Thank you so much for spending time with us and allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints.
0: This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes, and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts, and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers and be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.